Welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read about some false repressed memories so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read Michelle Remembers by Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder. Joining us to discuss this redacted classic of the satanic panic is Grace, who fondly remembers a time before she read this book, and Ashley, a woman who sometimes gets non-supernatural dermatitis. Hello, this is Grace. Hi, this is Ashley. I get dermatitis sometimes. <laughs> is it shaped like Satan's tail, though? It, yeah, it's it's not. It's um, it it's definitely. If there is anything supernatural, I wasn't paying attention hard enough to like mm. read too much into it. But just the times that I've I've had it. Maybe you need to see a handsome psychiatrist about it. <laughs> and then he can give you a referral to the bishop for your dermatology <laughs> needs. <laughs> Uh, you might remember Grace and Ashley last joined us uh, earlier this year for the Left Behind books. And if you listen to that episode, you would know that uh, Grace and Ashley are in a cult club with us. Not a cult. Where we're not in a cult. <laughs> not a cult. It's not a cult. It's a club about cults. And we decided that uh, this would be both a good thing for us to discuss as a club and to share our discussion with you and like kind of shout out on this to the folks on Patreon who I kind of casually said a few months ago, like, oh yeah, I kind of want to do say, uh, Michelle Remembers for an episode and everyone jumped on that and begged <laughs> us to do it. So here we are. Not Patreon. I meant Discord. I said Patreon. I meant Discord. I mean, people on Patreon, I think also did vote for this. Some of them. Okay. Or nominate it. Yeah. The the people are clamoring for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I feel like, I think all of us on this episode generally listen to You're Wrong About the podcast and know that they've done episodes about Michelle Remembers, although not all of us had listened to that episode yet. And I feel a little bit like us doing an episode after they do it. It's like, we're like covering a Beatles song or something. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> but like we do have a different perspective than they do so i'm just carrying that in my heart yeah i i yes. think it's it's funny because like i listen to so many and i know you don't which is why i think this is an interesting perspective i listen to so many like murder and cult adjacent podcasts mm -hmm. that i have listened to so many podcasts about michelle remembers in the satanic panic that like, even though you're wrong about, I think has a bigger audience than probably a lot of those do. It did just kind of feel like a drop in the bucket at, as opposed to like, you know, a chart topping Beatles hit. Uh, well, by the <laughs> way, this book, okay. It's garbage. It's garbage. I just got back from like a week camping in Acadia National Park, like fucking beautiful scenery. I was there with a friend who's like not very online. And at the end of the day, we would just like sit around the campfire with our own books and she'd be reading like nice romance novels. And I was like, I have to finish reading this like redacted book from 1980 <laughs> about... And she was just like, why are you... Do I don't understand. I was like, I don't really understand either. Like this is just... <laughs> These are the choices I made, and this is what I have to do on my vacation now. I'm just picturing a zoom in that's like, you might be wondering how I got here. <laughs> It'll vary that. And I was just like, Ugh. and every so often I'd be like, oh, I have to read this part to you. And she was like, please stop. I, <laughs> I mean, the thing that when you told me about that, what I didn't realize about this book that I think we all 
realized reading it was that more than like a paranormal thriller, this is actually a romance uh, yeah. in disguise. And yeah. so you got to read like a shitty romance book instead. It's true. It's everything. Uh, especially so someone in the um, so- someone in the notes, I can't remember if it was Grace or Ashley, mentioned like, oh, it sounds like they wrote this book entirely to justify the fact why they had to get married at the yes. end of it. And I had never thought of it that way before, but reading it, I was like, oh, no, that is 100% what this is. This is them being like, oh, but we, we of course, we fell in love. Like, you can't deny that. Look yes. at how true our love is in between these graphic depictions of, like, child abuse and animal <laughs> abuse and other horrible things that are happening. They being, of course, the patient and the therapist who wrote the book together. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, yeah, if you're not at all familiar with this somehow, that, well, there's other podcasts about it, so maybe listen to those and come back. But Michelle Remembers is co-written by the titular Michelle and Dr. Lawrence Pazder, who is her therapist slash husband. And the timeline of this is so suspicious because they, I guess the therapy that they were doing took place in 1977, which matched up with like the black mass liturgical calendar. We can get into that later. And they were both married to other people while they were doing this therapy together. And then in 1979, they got divorced. And I actually could not find, they've like scrubbed the internet of the date that they actually were married. I think because they realized like how suspicious this is. But 1979, definitely they divorced their other partners. And then 1980, this book comes out. You would not know that. There is no mention in the book that they are divorced, that they are together as a couple. It is presented as a book about just like a cool, hip doctor and his like very vulnerable, beautiful young patient. And they wrote it together from this like weird combined third person narrator who is both of them. And so the narrator is like sort of horny for both of them. And it's constantly like the tanned. <laughs> life doctor entered the room and saw the beautiful young patient on the couch and it's like this is you guys <laughs> i'm just picturing them at opposite ends of the table and like michelle's writing the part and she's like hey larry wendy what how do you want me to describe you in this chapter he's like mm, have you described me as life recently let's do that again what about my high polish cheekbones yeah tanned even in february i absolutely made a list <laughs> Yeah. The bulk of this book is somehow you're completely unfamiliar with it, which if you are good for you, we listen to different media. Um, (laughs) It is about Michelle, with the help of Dr. Pazder, is remembering terrible abuse in her childhood that she had repressed, where her mother gave her to a satanic cult, and they abused her and tortured her and put her through all sorts of horrible things that she is only now remembering years later. Uh, And there's like a weird narrative justification for why that is that like, if I read it in a novel, I'd be like, well, that's bullshit, but okay. But we, we should warn in case it's not clear from the way we've been vaguely talking about at the top, there are some content notes for this child abuse, animal abuse, child sexual abuse, general grossness, uh, miscarriage, child death, any terrible thing you can imagine, probably. We're not going to get into much detail about the terrible things she describes, but we are going to be talking about them as broad concepts. And then also a further content note that we'll be getting into a little bit later, but most of this has been discredited fully. Oh, yeah, most, completely. All. So, like, she talks about nasty stuff that happened, but then it didn't actually happen. But, yeah. like, 
I still had to read about it. <laughs> right. I feel like this is like the most pure, we read this so you don't have to, that maybe you guys have ever, like I literally, no one should read this. We took this on based on your Discord and Patreon <laughs> fans clamoring for it. We took this on so you literally don't have to. Please do not ever read this book. It's so gross. It's really gross. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the book for a bit, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about the aftermath of the book and what happened with the, the book being discredited and some other things that that it sort of started the ball rolling with. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of do the book in broad strokes because there's like really no need for us to get into detail of these like horrible repetitive things. The entire structure of the book is kind of these passages of her of Michelle visiting Doctor Pazder. And going through this trauma and and lots of narrative from his perspective, thinking like, oh, God, how can I help this poor girl? I need to do research to help, like, figure out how we can help her deal with this. And her being vulnerable and upset and needing comfort from him interspersed with these flashbacks that are, quote unquote, taken from transcripts of the tapes that he made of their sessions together. And the transcripts themselves are largely nonsense that kind of paint the picture of all of these terrible things happening to her. They're hard to understand, like, what even she's describing. And then, yeah, every once in a while, Dr. Paz, we're like, ah, I see. So you were describing ritual sex. And I'm like, you pervert. She didn't describe anything like sex. Like, she just described, like, chanting and a lump. And, like, you're the one who decided that the lump was sex. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, Pastor made a lot of leaps of logic that I had trouble following. I was like, we're reading the same things here. Pastor, I don't understand how you got how you interpreted this to be something so clear and like, yes, this is definitely a satanic ritual and it's absolutely the Church of Satan. I was like, is it though? <laughs> it's and it's a lot of like like there'll be like a, a an indented paragraph of like a direct quote from the the transcript, but then there'll be a couple paragraphs that are like describing what was happening in the scene described in the it's very all of it's very suspect and obviously it's all been debunked now but like it was very clearly suspect from the start but it does actually start with a, a actually a series of prologues there are several like forwards and prologues mm-hmm. to this book but the the one that i'm gonna start with is it, it is talking about how they're at the vatican the two of them and a priest that they're friends with and a bishop from that priest's um parish who are all trying to get the attention of any Vatican officials so that they'll understand this terrible problem they're having with Satan in Canada and this group that, that, you know, was torturing Michelle and they really just need to talk to church people about it. And there's a lot of, it's just so nonsense. (laughs) Yeah. And even the, the, I feel like they must've had to get these checked because the quotes they have from the church officials that I feel like, they're like, oh, slam dunk, the church is with us. The quotes are very tempered. Like, it's clear that Michelle believes that this happened. And if that happened, that would be bad. But like, the church needs further investigation. And then they're like, slam dunk, put that in the foreword. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, it starts out with some background on Pazder and Michelle. And like, Michelle has recently had a miscarriage and she's in the hospital and she's very upset. And the doctors call Pazder because 
he had treated her for like general psychiatric stuff, not like intense past life regression stuff mm-hmm. or uh, memory regression stuff. And they're like, oh, well, maybe you can help her. She's just so sad. And we can't figure out why she's so upset that she's in the hospital in the ward where her mother recently died of cancer after having a miscarriage. And she's just real sad about it. And we don't get it. Yeah, there, there must be something else going on, because, like, why would she be this sad about that? And I, I want to be clear if you're not familiar. This is my sarcastic voice. I'm like, of course she was sad about that. Jesus Christ. But they're so dismissive of that, and I know that that is, you know, still an issue, and I feel like probably, you know, more so in the 70s of, like, especially male doctors not understanding the kinds of, of real trauma associated with, like, pregnancy and miscarriage and... Jesus Christ, though. And the other thing that, so I did a little bit of, I think as we all did, a little bit of outside reading. And in an article, I had read that this was actually her third miscarriage. It's oh, not mentioned wow. in the book. Yeah, there's that. And also, and I, I say this as someone who's had a miscarriage, like, and I think things have maybe changed since the 70s, but basically, like, miscarriage as actually pastor the therapist says in the in the book like oh actually miscarriages are really common that's like up to 20 percent of pregnancies end in miscarriage but like it's usually i don't know about usually but a lot of times miscarriage is not a hospitalizable thing you just Mm -hmm. deal with it at home and so the fact that she like wouldn't stop bleeding and had to be hospitalized it's like that's incredibly traumatic like and so and that's just kind of glossed over in the book and then later there's all these things about like there are so many dead babies in her memories. And it's just kind of like, never, he never makes the connection that like, maybe, maybe these things, I don't know, potentially could be connected trauma. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and also even more than that, they're trying to make a psychological like, oh, the reason that she won't stop bleeding is because she's so sad. But it can't be about the miscarriage itself. It must be about something else. It can't be that we as doctors haven't done everything we can do to help her stop bleeding it has to be like psychosomatic um so she she goes to him and they they talk and she says to him like oh i feel like there's something i really need to tell you but i can't like i physically can't tell you because in my mind i can't conceptualize what it is i need to tell you but i know it's there and he's like okay well like you know you can just come and sit until you're ready to say it and then like one friday she's like i think i'm ready to say it and he's like okay well tomorrow's saturday but you can come in and like do what you need to do and she comes in on a saturday and they sit and she tells him this like very vague horrible thing about like something that could conceivably be like a weird ritual happening around her when she was like five years old and he's like oh my god like this is terrible like no wonder you've repressed this we need to delve further into this so you should keep coming back sometimes for six hours a day so that we can go through these memories of yours and figure out like what happened to you yes and by the way later in the book truly i saw these six hour appointments i was like I don't know, I guess they're Canadian and they have good health care. <laughs> Later in the book, he does say, like, her health care coverage would only cover one hour of appointments per day, which is, still seems like a lot, and it's like five hours a week or whatever. But he wrote a letter saying this is a special case and he, they needed permission for longer appointments and got it, apparently, like, <laughs> up to six hours. I don't know, this seems like a, such a wild amount of therapy to be receiving, um, but got that book deal and he made it clear he would have kept treating her even if he hadn't gotten the approval but like you know a man has to make some money Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she she comes back for these appointments, and over time, kind of what comes to light is that she uh, her mother gave her her mother, and that's important. Her mother gave her to this satanic cult when she was like five, huh. and the cult was mostly made up of evil women mm-hmm. who she calls mommies. Mm-hmm. who did terrible, horrible things to her, and one man named Malachi, who was also there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who was, like, kind of in charge and seemed to be, like, chief wizard. Yeah. One thing also that's confusing, and this is something I'm not sure I would have put together if I hadn't actually listened to the You're Wrong About episodes. I don't know if other podcast episodes get into this, but basically... They pointed out that the way that Dr. Pazder describes the therapy, it seems like he's hypnotizing Michelle, which I guess is sort of a lot of the times how how doctors do this, like, you know, repressed memory recovery thing, which is pretty much a discredited practice now because because patients are so suggestible and i think kate's gonna speak on that in more depth later but he never says that he's hypnotizing her he just talks about her being like in her depths and pulling her back from her depths and stuff like that which is sort of like hypnosis adjacent language but then later he says that the satanists were hypnotizing her to like rewrite her memories so he frames hypnosis as something sort of evil but also maybe is doing it to her also, I here's a quote I've pulled. Dr. Pazder recognized suddenly that this was not 27-year-old Michelle speaking, but who? A child? <laughs> in italics. Yes, of course. In voice, in gesture, in language, there was no mistaking it. A girl of perhaps no more than five lay on the couch before him. He was awed and fascinated and moved. And I've added the note, and horny. Which is, which is which is not textual, but like he seemed kind of horny about it. I feel like also one thing that the M- Michelle's remembrances start off like extremely confusing, but yeah. then as I feel like Pastor and the Catholic priests that they go visit kind of interpret and integrate the what she's seeing and sort of suggesting to her that it's satanic, the more there's like a coherent narrative of what's happening. But in the beginning, it's like really everything is just sort of like nightmare detritus of just terrible abuse, a lot of hospitals, like trauma also like being like hospitalized as a child and being confused about it, which is also like, Oh, I wonder why she doesn't like hospitals. Uh, (laughs) She like wasn't a, she did have to be hospitalized as a child because of a car accident, which then she like has like a weird satanic memory of. But also there's all these like Pazder like tries to get medical records to sort of corroborate some of the things that she alleges happened. And there's just all of these like, yeah, it looks like she was in a car accident. Okay, sure. Nothing like not more than that. That's not that weird. Oh, you know, she alleges that Satanists like pulled out her teeth. And so she goes to a dentist and the dentist is like, oh, it looks like there was some damage to one tooth when you were a child. Okay, we'll do a root canal. But like, and he presents it as, or they presented it as like, and see, that's proof. And it's just like, okay, like, is it? (laughs) Yeah. But then later, Michelle's like, oh, they sewed horns to my head and a tail (laughs) to my spine and I pulled them out and there's no... There's no medical records of that. And Dr. Pazder's like, ah, that's because Michelle was like so good that it like healed. 
Like Jesus healed her. Yeah, Jesus and Mother Mary, who who spoiler joins the narrative at a later date. After she's converted to Catholicism. Yeah. Here's another quote I have pulled. The small office was filled with an almost unbearable tension, as if a live grenade had suddenly been placed between them, threatening to explode in their faces. And then the note I've annotated that with just says horny jail, which is where (laughs) people need to go. There's so like every chapter is this. I appreciate that you pulled all the horny quotes for us. Oh, not all. Oh, I don't think she did. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, this document doesn't have space for that, but a lot of that, like every chapter is this. Yeah. Oh, another thing that comes up a lot is Michelle early on describes that she uh, she wasn't raised religious, but she realizes that crosses freak these people out. So she'll like make a sign of a cross with her fingers or like draw a cross or like try to use crosses to disturb these people. And Dr. Pazder's like, Michelle was like so innately good that she knew crosses were like good. And and also Dr. Pazder keeps remembering his time spent studying the Yoruba people in Nigeria and how similar these evil practices are to what he saw there. And I truly, like, truly, we cannot, like, unpack how racist and gross this is. But, like, you get it. That's disgusting. Move on. The cross thing is particularly interesting because generally in, like, the mythos of various supernatural and paranormal and like satanic creatures that fear crosses. The idea is that it's what the cross means and the faith behind the cross. So like a child being like, I drew a cross (laughs) would not actually hold that weight to them theoretically. But you know, this is all made up anyway. So what the (laughs) fuck does it, you know, another piece of like the, the backstory we get on Michelle is that when she was young, her father abandoned her and her mother. And then her mother died when she was a teenager and her grandparents became her primary guardians and then sent her to Catholic school where she wasn't required to do anything Catholic, which having been to religious school, I find very suspicious as like a thing that like they wouldn't make you do the Catholic stuff. So like clearly she does have some sense of like religion by the time she is in doing these memories. So there's that. But then also, you know, it's sort of, there's all of these, like, it sounds like from the, her, when she was a, uh, before she had these miscarriages and had seen Pastor prior to these episodes um, for quote unquote normal therapy, she talks about, you know, dealing with a sort of, I guess, emotionally distant mother. And mm-hmm. so like, when I was reading it, I was kind of like sort of reading it through that lens of like, oh, clearly she has some like mommy issues to sort mm-hmm. out, blah, blah, blah. And then uh I, I don't know if this is a spoiler for later in the debunking. She has an older and younger sister <laughs> that she doesn't mention in this book, who basically are like, no, none of this happened. Our mother was devoted to us. Like mm. what, this, like we we were around. Like when would she have been like hidden in the basement? So like I don't know, Michelle. I don't know what what's up with the family, but like. The fact that they don't mention, they, they sort of present Michelle as this like sad orphan who has absolutely no one except her husband and Dr. Pazder is like, it's just not actually, to, from what I can tell, like the, the truth mm-hmm. of her family situation. Mm-hmm. And also, this book is, it goes out of its way again to be like, and then Michelle would come home and try to tell her husband, Doug, about the therapy, but Doug wasn't interested in listening. Yeah, I want Doug's okay. POV because, like, 
poor Doug, like yeah. justice for Doug, who is kind of being portrayed as an asshole, but like also like, hey, like our Canadian tax dollars are paying for you to go to this therapist. Like that's for you and the therapist to work out all of these terrible issues that you have. But also like, it's like chap- like chapters would just end on the cliffhanger of like, and Doug just turned around and went to sleep instead of listening to Michelle's problems. And like, again, presenting like the justification for like, obviously <laughs> she's going to need to divorce this dude. He doesn't care. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. I wondered how much of the actual writing was him and how much of it was her based yeah. entirely on the fact that there is a lot of stuff that's like, and Doug didn't care or like, and Doug left her alone. And, you know, Doug was kind, but he just couldn't bring himself to ask her how her day went and there's not a lot of that with his family he has four grown adult children also by the way when this Mm -hmm. is happening a wife and four grown adult children yeah which makes me definitely made it feel like it was maybe i don't know but yeah there's there's a lot of of stuff about how doug is neglectful how he he seems like a good man but he just doesn't really care about michelle the way that he really should and Mm -hmm. other people who are going to remain nameless do Mm-hmm. Uh, but not so much about how terrible his family is. Mm-hmm. One of the only times that Dr. Pazder's family comes up is when he asks Michelle's permission to tell his wife a little bit about her story, just so he can explain to his wife why he's spending like six hours a day with this one patient and like why when he's on vacation to Mexico, Michelle is allowed to call him with breakthroughs uh, that she's making with her backup therapist. And then... Like, so he asked Michelle her permission and then he comes in and he's like, oh, I did tell my wife about you. And then Michelle is troubled by that. And Dr. Pazder wonders if he's made a mistake in like communicating with his wife about this. And it's just like, uh, okay. Like, okay. Yeah. There's a lot. It's just, I mean, the structure of this goes on and on like this in her like fake fantasy world. She goes through like weird rituals with all sorts of terrible things happening and her not really like understanding what's going on, but knowing that like, you know, all these like weird sex things are happening around her and that she's being, you know, smeared with various bodily fluids and all sorts of gross things that I don't want to go too deep into. But as time goes on, she keeps ruining quote unquote, their rituals by acting out or like not being docile the way she's supposed to a lot of times without even realizing it or doing it on purpose. But eventually she does eventually Mary does come to her. But it's like a secret. It's like a big reveal. Like that, that there are some narrative choices in this book about like what's a big reveal and what's not. Like at some point there's the big reveal that the devil guys is actually Lucifer. I'm like, I was raised atheist and I know that those are the same person. <laughs> but like it's 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 like they never actually I don't think they ever actually call her Mary. They talk about her being the mother of Yeah, they call her, well, they call her in French, ma mère. And this is part of Dr. Pester's like, whoa, and it was crazy because Michelle started speaking French and she didn't know French and there's no way that she could know French. And it's like, you're Canadian. Like, even if she's not, like, you don't think she could have picked up some background French anywhere other than visions of the Virgin Mary who's French for some reason? I do feel like in the, they like sort of, I don't think they ever say explicitly that she never learned French, but rather she could, she always, uh, rather she struggled with the language requirement in college. So like, it's actually kind of sneaky in that it implies that, oh, she's never learned French. But if you like actually look at it, it's like, oh, she just wasn't, she alleged to not be good at it. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. But like, 
I never, t- actually, I took one semester of French, but I know my mother is my mother. Like, that's not hard anyway. Well, also, one of the weird things, uh, sort of going back to your, someone's point about like, oh, you know, he gets frustrated with her and she's not docile or something like he gets really weirded out and like starts questioning whether or not it's real not from all the satanic stuff but when basically when mary shows up in the like visions right suddenly like oh now this is weird that jesus and mary are showing up that's when it he suddenly like starts to question her and it's just sort of yeah like the actual literal devil with a tail like literal devil with a tail is part of her remembrances and that's like fine like obviously obviously the devil is like flitting about in 1970s British Columbia because that's where his people are. But like, as soon as like the, you know, counterpart to that shows up, Oh no, now we've gone too far. Now we're like seeing the Virgin Mary on toast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the devil, by the way, wraps his tail around her throat, uh, his actual physical devil tail and, and leaves a mark, the mark of the devil. Yeah. And so then she has what a dermatologist says is like some sort of dermatitis that could be from like, uh, vegetation, which it's also mentioned early in the book that she was really into like gardening and having exotic plants. And one of the fun things about like allergy type things or contact dermatitis is that like things that previously didn't bother you can start bothering you out of nowhere. So the fact that they're just like that she has like this unknown, like, ooh, we don't know why she has these crazy rashes on her arms and neck. Oh, the dermatologist definitely doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just like, Guys, like... <laughs> and to be clear, this is like a rash on her neck in the 70s while she's talking to Pazder that is supposed to be, I forgot the phrase word, it's supposed to be like the echo of the rash that she got in the 50s from the devil. It's like th- there's something, and I'm sure we're going to get into it later, there's like a weird calendar alignment that like now mm-hmm. it's exactly 20-something years later. And so she's literally going through day by day every single literal thing that happened to her in the fifties when she was a child. So like the calendar like matches exactly. And, and the, the rashes that she's experiencing are showing up on the days when she saw like the 25 years later when she saw the devil, it's very confusing. So the calendar thing is literally just that, like, you know how this year, October 31st is on a Sunday and last year it was on a Saturday, but in, you know, six more years or whatever, it'll be on a Sunday again. And that's where they are. Their calendar dates are the same. They they mirror each other in like 1955 and 1977 or whatever. And that is like his proof that this is why this is happening because the dates are the same. Right. Well, and it's this whole thing. So yeah, she's having this ongoing physical anniversary reaction to the abuse where, you know, on this day was the Satan's tail thing. So now she has a rash, but on a different day, she was exposed to smoke. So now she has a cough. And the whole thing is the satanic church has this really complicated calendar that made me think I was ha- being forced to do like a video game puzzle. Oh my like, God. Uh, like now I'm playing <laughs> Tomb Raider and it's like, okay, well like the Christian liturgical calendar celebrates Ash Wednesday on this day. The satanic calendar is focused on 13 because 13 is the evil number. So they have 13 months in a year. And so their holidays are like this, but it's based <laughs> on the liturgical calendar, but evil. And so anyway, like, here's when the black mass is compared to when the regular mass is. And I was like, fuck all of this. And like, the, and, and their New Year's celebration was like mid, it, it was something like, the dates didn't match up somehow. It was like, they did 
their New Year's celebration, but then they were like, well, too much time has gone on between Christmas and New Year's. And they were like, oh, wait, but because 13 is an evil number and they're Satanists, their New Year's in the middle of January. Don't worry, guys. The math checks out. (laughs) The Satanist calendar has March as a month, so they can have 13 months. (laughs) There's literally a footnote at some point in the book where... They blame the like the fact that like the dates are just like a little off on the Satanists having quote unquote inconclusive methods of counting. <laughs> Which I just love that like that's how it's like, well, it doesn't quite work out exactly in our favor. So we're just gonna blame the fact that the Satanists are are like beyond knowing like their methods to to account for why it's just not quite right. Yeah, so it's just, it's lots of terrible, abusive things done to her. And eventually, like I said, she sees a vision of Mary and Mary, you know, helps her her through and she has visions of Jesus. And Mary tells her that like her ab- abuse, what does she say? Like your abuse is going to end and you're going to forget, but then you'll remember and you'll you'll be the, the mouth to many ears. Mary yeah, Mary keeps telling her to look for ears and that Michelle will need ears. And she doesn't really explicitly explain what this means, especially not to a five-year-old. But then Dr. Pastor's like, oh, you need to like share this story and like we need to go talk to the church. And I I think it was Grace who said the the preface to this book sounds like a Dan Brown novel. (laughs) And like that's where we kind of get into that where it's like, yeah, we gotta share this story with the Vatican. I think also at one point she literally tugs on Pazder's ear as just, <laughs> I think that might also be one random manifestation of that command. Yeah, they are incredibly physical with each other in this yes. book. <laughs> when he goes to Mexico, he leaves his sheepskin jacket for her to like snuggle with so, so mm-hmm. she'll feel better when she's like trying to remember stuff because a lot of times she gets super duper cold during these remembrances and he puts his sheepskin jacket over her to keep her warm like that's just weird yeah. that's what you do when like you're going on vacation you don't want your cat to be sad you leave like your <laughs> <laughs> well he he justifies this by saying that her inner child needs human contact because the satanist deprived her of human contact so obviously you just gotta like cuddle with your doctor and his outerwear <laughs> She's also allowed to like just go into his office kind of whenever when he's not there to continue recording stuff. And so when he comes back from vacation, she's like kind of redecorated the office. Yeah, she mm-hmm. added some plants. And also, can we talk about her fiber art? Was that oh what my God. her career? Yeah. She sells like thousand dollar fiber art sculptures, which like good for her. Yeah, that was right. a very strange like detail that was just like, and this is one of those things where it's like, I would like less details about the hospital tortures and more details about this weird fiber art she's doing in in Canada. (laughs) Right. I mean, so there's a lot of disgusting descriptions of like these memories that again, we don't need to get into them. And then she basically like makes her way through the, the evil liturgical calendar. And then she says that, you know, the remembering has ended and then the book just ends pretty abruptly. Oh, I do. Okay, I have one thing I want to share. I'm coming back to the end of my notes. So Satan speaks in rhymes and like terrible rhymes. And the narrative is like, says they talk to a priest and is like, oh yeah, Satan is known to speak in rhymes. And that's just like, okay. And they're not good rhymes. And the priest is like, yeah, I've read Hannah Arendt's Banality of Evil. And I think this is very applicable that like, you know, these are very banal rhymes and it's just, that's sh- like to hide the evil in them. I was like, are you really, you really 
calling this banality of evil. Anyway, sorry, go on. Right, that, and then, like, multiple times they compare her to a concentration camp survivor, and it's like, I feel like you, like, skimmed one article and you don't really know what you're talking about, but, okay, sure, Hannah Arendt, sure. Anyway, one of the satanic verses that they quote is, people will do anything for a child. They will kill and steal and run wild. Fall into my pit. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. I did not excerpt this weirdly. That is the whole quote. And then it moves on to like, and then Dr. Pazzer said like, wow, that's crazy. Like, that's the whole thing. But like also picture like literally a hundred pages of this poetry. Like, yeah. and, it's, and it's like in italics and like set aside so you know it's poetry. But this one ends with fall into my pit. And I just want to share a short anecdote that is, I couldn't stop thinking about this. Uh, when I was in the Peace Corps, for the first couple months like everyone stays with a host family in the capital city and we would like walk to this one training center for training and there's a huge hole in the sidewalk like six foot deep pit in the sidewalk for like i don't know what caused it but there was just this like huge hole that you had to kind of go around this giant hole and then one day it rained and the hole filled with water and so it looked like a puddle and I, I'll keep her nameless. One girl fell in the hole, like fully like up to her head in sidewalk hole puddle, which is horrible and disgusting. So that happened. And for a while, that was kind of like her thing was like, oh, that's the girl who fell in a hole. And then like a year later, we had another we got back together for a training. and It was really boring. And I don't remember why, but we all just started writing limericks about each other. But a different friend did not really understand the format of limerick and the limerick that she wrote about this girl who who fell in the hole who I'll I'll call her Michelle which is not her name but so our friend wrote this limerick that was like there once is a girl named Michelle she was um now I need to make it rhyme with Michelle whatever what she about, was what about Mickey okay great yeah there once was a girl named Mickey she was really fun and chatty she fell in a hole <laughs> and I was like and that's the whole limerick that she wrote and i just had this like, huge flashback of like oh my god was that satan's limerick it, it kind of there I, I kept thinking like maybe maybe this actually maybe maybe if the debunking of this was all part of satan's plan to get his poetry published when it wouldn't go through <laughs> traditional means uh yeah i love it it's, there's a um, there's an old timey radio show, uh, an old timey horror radio show that's called um, the Devil's Scrapbook, mm. which theoretically is meant to be like oh like these are all stories like I clipped them out of a newspaper but for the devil and like they're terrible things that happened that I influenced. But given what scrapbook tends to mean these days, <laughs> it yeah. does feel like the Devil's Scrapbook would fit in really well with the Devil's <laughs> poetry here. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. He sent his poetry into Reader's Digest, and then when it got published, he snipped it out along with the, you know, humor and uniform. Because they're all members of the Satan's army, if you think about it. By the way, okay, also, I keep trying to wind this down. Also, her remembrances of Satan's, like, math and his prophecies sort of seems to indicate war in the Middle East, but in, like, the most vague way... Also, in, like, a way that suggests to me that, like, whoever was saying this, I don't know if it was the devil, I don't know if it was Michelle, had, like, a really bad understanding of, like, geography. Because, like, yeah. there's a, there's some rhyme that goes, like, 
Okinawa, per per Persia, Russia, Iran will mate. And like, it took me a while. I was like, wait, Iran is Persia. So like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so it came like, true. They did mate. Ashley, <laughs> the names of countries have changed so many times since the devil's been around. He like can't keep up. He's, he's busy scrapbooking. He can't keep his maps updated. <laughs> but then there's also like a publisher's note that was like, a really vague publisher's note being like, and this is how it was presented at the time or something that was just kind of like a, a sort of like stat. Of a- <laughs> are you, are you going to copy edit the devil? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nelson limited. Wasn't going to copy edit the devil anyway. So yeah, her, her geopolitics, whoever's geopolitics, these are just kind of like, huh? Okay. I mean, Dr. Pezzer does keep referring to his time in Africa, period. Yeah. Occasionally he will specify a country, but there's a lot of just lumping all of Africa together, which, and again... it's never positive. Yeah. Never mm. positive. And it's always helping him remember something. Like, there was... I know you're trying to wind this down. Can we talk about the fire and the ghosts that they see in the fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they... Yeah, when they're burning the evil bench. So I'm going to read an excerpt about the evil be- evil bench here a little while. But they find an evil bench in the church and they decide to burn it. And they burn it and it smells like human flesh, which obviously Pastor knows from his time. He knows what that smells like from his time in Africa. You know, normal. Yeah, yeah. And he he also did a comedic running around to get his cameras because he wanted to be able to take pictures. And they see this like vision in the smoke that they decide is the Virgin Mary somehow. But they see this vision yep. in the smoke and my copy of the book recreates these photos and let me tell you, it looks just like smoke. But they <laughs> they decide that it's like some sort of crazy religious like sign and they're all very excited about it. But then they put the fire out and they go away and then the... I don't remember if they're with a bishop or a whatever at this point. And then he looks out the window and the fire has restarted itself in chapter. Um, but then they spend like the next, I- I'm a little unclear how many times they try to recreate the fire, but they, they talk about it as if they're doing science. They recreate all of the exact, the, the setup of the fire and time of day and the same people. And they can't recreate the, but, but obviously the bench has been burned. So they don't have the magic evil bench anymore, but they can't recreate that one specific smoke burst that they, decided was the virgin mary and so that's how they know facts that was the virgin mary yes yeah okay and then the epilogue of the book is like after michelle was returned from the cult to her family like a no one really seemed to have missed her it was just kind of like oh yeah she went back to school and nobody no teachers or anybody was like wow you seem to have missed like months of school like nothing but when she came back like she was so like you know traumatized that quote what Michelle wanted to eat was rather limited. Just salad, tomato soup, vegetables, especially cabbage, and ice cream. It was all she ate for a long time, maybe months. Which, okay, she only wants to eat salad and vegetables. Okay, that's <laughs> kind of the same thing. And then, and ice cream. It's like, okay, so maybe she was just like a picky child eater. Anyway, this book also throughout it makes some like weird things where it's like oh michelle had gained weight because of the trauma like it's very focused on her size and whether she's like a small and vulnerable waif or if she's like gained weight and become hideous from the trauma and there they also talk about how her mom used to be hot but then something happened and her mom gained weight and it's like okay like maybe she just was getting older and gained some weight or maybe she joined a satanist cult we don't know this book just has like everything in it like did you think it wouldn't have weird food issues oh it does (laughs) 
I mean, it doesn't have everything. It leaves out some very crucial facts. That's, yeah, okay. It doesn't have factual accuracy. (laughs) No, guys, they did science on the bench. (laughs) It also had, I also need to talk about all of the naked fingerless men really quickly. Oh, yes. Because, and this is where people who were debunking it were like, surely, like, Victoria, British Columbia is small enough. Surely if there were, like, dozens of men missing their middle fingers like someone would have noticed that was weird um but there's one of the ceremonies at the end involves a bunch of men who are all completely naked for some reason cutting off their own middle finger and then just Mm -hmm. like going on with the ceremony and i'm just like that does not sound as easy as it was just described Mm -hmm. and also like don't you need to cauterize that shit like uh. they do wrap it in a white cloth so that's Mm -hmm. fine Mm -hmm. also I, I'm going to be reading a little bit of this from my dramatic reading, but Michelle takes the one of the bones and then Satan is just like, where's my bone? I need my bone. <laughs> and I, I kept hearing Satan in that moment as, as Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And that's all. <laughs> if you, if you know the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Anyway, I, I think we've pretty much reached the end of the book if we want to transition to, to um, Kate's TED Talk. Sure. I would love nothing more. I have been waiting my entire life for this moment, I think. I do feel I do feel like there's a lot of pressure now. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm just going to give some background into like what what the world was like before Michelle remembers and sort of what Michelle remembers helped snowball into what would become the satanic panic. And I could go back to like the 1920s, but I'm not going to because we'd be here all day. Um, So I I am going to start with like the 1960s and Anton LaVey, who we mentioned earlier, who is the high priest of the Church of Satan, the original and the father of the Church of Satan. Um, And he was a a gentleman who kind of self-identified as like a freak. He bought a house in San Francisco and painted it black. He would host all of these like parties at his house where people would come and talk about like philosophy and they do like weird little rituals for funsies and like he shaved his head and like, you know, would like wax his bald head and like had like this little goatee. So he looked freaky on the streets and that sort of thing. He drove a hearse. He would research the paranormal openly. And in the early 60s, the group of people who met at his house regularly for these parties uh, were called the Order of the Trapezoid. And they ended up, as he decided to develop the Church of Satan, to becoming the, the governing body, the base group of the Church of Satan. So he published, the Church of Satan was established in, I feel like the early to mid 60s. I don't have the exact date in front of me. Um, but the Satanic Bible was published in 1969. And depending on who you ask, there are different reasons why the Satanic Bible was published. LeVay had already been circulating a lot of essays and pamphlets and things about like his different philosophical ideas and you know some people say like oh well it was time to bind them into a book his daughter who at one point was a high-ranking member of the church of satan but has since um become estranged from him and the church says that a guy from the avon publishing house contacted him and was like hey do you want to publish a book with us i think that would drive people wild (laughs) And so he rushed to get this together in time to publish. The book itself is largely like essays. Um, It delves into like the tenets of Satanism. Satanists don't um, worship Satan. 
which is something that I think most people who listen to this podcast probably know. Uh, largely, they're very into like independent thinking. And these days, they're really strongly in favor of free speech and largely exist to promote free speech across the country in places where people try to, you know, do things like uh, create a, a statue of the Ten Commandments on federal property. They would, they'll come in and, and be like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, you have to put a statue of our God there too, because, you know, separation of church and state. They have a lot of like objectivist and kind of like Anne Randian philosophies, uh, but not, they don't worship Satan. They don't actually believe that Satan or God exist. And also, um, Kate, can I interrupt you? I, think, I feel like it's also very important to point out that this the Church of Satan started in the 60s and Michelle's yes. rememberings occurred in the 50s and are yes. explicitly in the book ascribed to the Church of Satan, which LaVey was not stoked about. <laughs> no, no, he was not. Also, there are different, I, I guess, uh, there are also different flavors of Satanism. There's like the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple, which are two different organizations and like, I think the latter, the Satanic Temple, is more of the, like, we're going to be activists and stuff, and they kind of don't like the, like, objectivist Randian stuff of yes. the Church of Satan. So there's, like, there's different flavors, there's different denominations of Satanism now. <laughs> yes, down the line, as 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 the, the church develops and more people sort of get involved with this idea, it does fracture into different, um, different Satanic governing bodies, religious groups. Or whatever, but yeah, uh, the the church Satan doesn't actually believe in Satan or worship Satan, except as the the actual definition of Satan in the Bible, which is just as adversary. Um, a lot of the points in the Bible that refer to Satan, Satan is used as a word to essentially mean just like adversary, which in some cases is an actual devil, frequently Lucifer, but also could could just be in that that general sense, which is how they, they sort of look at it. So all this is happening in 1969, which is a very poor time because uh, as the folks in on this call in our club know, uh, in August of 1969, the Tate-LaBianca murders occur, and that uh, essentially uh, signals the end of 60s counterculture. The the followers of Charles Manson who committed these crimes were instructed by Manson to leave like witchy symbols behind, which tied them to this idea of Satanism and the Church of Satan, even though they were in no way connected. And many people look at this as kind of the end of like the hippie movement, the end of like the free love progressivism that was happening uh, during that era. Which brings us into a little bit later into the 70s and 80s. Counterculture in general was always inspired pushback from religious types going back to like the 1920s. And even beyond that, countercultures, which largely involved young people, um, those movements have always kind of inspired this sort of religious like, oh, no, they're, they're, Satan is causing to do this in order to save your loved ones. We need to push back against this. And conservative-leaning leaders have always used tragedies that take place within counterculture populations and movements as religious scare tactics about how this is like terrible and it's ruining our culture and we need to fight back against it. Uh, so specifically here in America, in North America, in the 1980s, conservatism was on the rise after the more progressive 
60s and 70s, a lot of fundamentalists had found their way into positions of power and were pushing back against that progress. They were frequently using children as a kind of uh, victim in basically everything that they were talking about as a way largely to harken back to like the nuclear family and how the point is to protect the children, specifically as a punishment against working mothers, which we'll get to in a second. They found Satan in literally everything from like heavy metal music to like Saturday morning cartoons and toys to, you know, nerdy math improv games for nerds, which there's <laughs> a really fascinating branch I could go on about Satanism and D&D, quote unquote Satanism and D&D, which I'm not going to go on because that'd be another 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and you have to wrap this up so we can play our D&D game this afternoon. It's true. <laughs> the, the Dark Lord commands it. <laughs> So like I said, a lot of it was pushed back against working women uh, because the role of women had been changing and women were leaving the home for work more frequently, which means that they were not raising their children themselves, but leaving their children, especially their very young children, to be cared for by quote unquote strangers, aka daycare workers and babysitters and the like. And it really clashed with these more conservative views on the nuclear family where the husband goes out to make money and the woman stays home and raises the children and takes care of the house. Uh, and a lot of these more fundamentalist-leaning folks felt that the children were suffering because their mothers were not there to care for them. And that would really leave mothers as the scapegoat for a lot of what is coming down the pike. Children became this sort of rallying cry for not just fundamentalists, but everyone, because going into the 1980s, child sex abuse was first being recognized as a potential issue. The rise of like the 24-hour news cycle meant that child abductions were no longer simple local stories, especially stranger abductions. And it became kind of a buzzword throughout the country of protecting these children. Stranger danger uh, started to become a thing, even though strangers actually account for a really small amount of child abuse and child abduction scenarios. But it did also give them a new national villain, which is the spooky pedophile who is going to come and take your children. And we really have never lost that as a, I mean, not that pedophiles shouldn't be a villain, but like the actual occurrence of stranger pedophiles abducting children versus the amount that people pull them out as boogeymen is not at all uh, equal. And as we'll get into later, uh, strangers are the least likely people to hurt children. So this is this is the background that Michelle Remembers comes out in. Michelle Remembers was published in 1980. It covered all of the things that we talked about. Everyone was talking about it. It was a bestseller. Like everyone was scared of all of these things, despite the fact that it was immediately debunked. Immediately when it came out, Michelle's sisters, as Ashley said, were coming out and saying, like, that never happened. Like, none of that could have happened. We were there the whole time. Like, our mom was great. Like, it is physically impossible for these things to have happened the way that she's saying. Uh, people she went to school with were were like she was in school with us during that time like there are records <laughs> like there's it was, an, it was an 81 day period that she was supposedly <laughs> like just to be clear it's yeah. not like oh like we're trying to remember one specific week in 19 like no like she was supposedly gone for like three months because yeah. of yeah. satanic for, math for, for the entire yeah for the entire black mass liturgical calendar as explained in the footnotes right yes. obviously um, you know, it was people are like, no, like, she, there, there's lots of records of her being out in the world, living, existing, going to school. But despite that, like, no one cared. Also, 
Pazder in like a weird kind of move was like, you can listen to the tapes and it proves it's true. But if you listen to the tapes, it just makes it very clear that he's the one who's directing these quote unquote memories Mm -hmm. down the direction that they go. But despite that, like no one cares. It's just immediately accepted as truth. And they become leading experts in satanic abuse and are, they work with police departments with the FBI across America looking into these supposed cases of satanic ritual abuse. As a married couple. As a married couple, yes. And incidences of satanic ritual abuse were on the rise as we moved into the daycare sex abuse hysteria. That is kind of what people think about, I think, when they think of the satanic panic. So largely this is thought to have started with the McMartin preschool case, uh, which was in 1983. Started in 1983. It goes on for seven years. When a four-year-old boy is having painful bowel movements, and uh, when he's asked by his doctors and mother, he makes a vague comment about one of his teachers at school, which his mother takes to mean that this teacher is molesting him. So she goes to the police. And in a real stellar move, the police send a letter to all the parents whose children are enrolled or have been enrolled in this preschool, basically saying, there's a terrible pedophile at your child's school. Please let us know if your child has also been hurt as we try to see if these allegations are true or not. So, of course, this leads to tons, hundreds of parents going to their children and asking if they have been hurt and the children saying, you know, no, well, no, I haven't. And the parents asking over and over again until the the children start to realize that the correct answer parents are looking for is yes and give that answer in order to make their parents happy. So as these allegations come in, uh, police decide that they're not really fit to interview these children. So they bring in child therapists to talk to the children instead. The child therapists are not trained in how to take statements from children for police reasons. And also child sex abuse itself is so new that interview techniques around this stuff for kids haven't really been vetted properly and they're not really yet understood and developed correctly. And uh, there's a lot of use of the anatomically correct dolls in the, you know, that have kind of become a cultural joke now, like show me on the doll where he touched you. So they would use those dolls, they would use these other wildly suggestive methods that would manipulate the children into more and more bizarre, completely bonkers confessions about what's going on and happening to them, you know, with with their teachers at preschool, because that's what they, they could tell the therapists interviewing them and their parents and the police wanted to hear. The therapists would be incredibly coercive. They would sometimes like start with like a fake scenario about like, they'll say, oh, did your teacher hurt you? And when the kid says no, they'll be like, oh, like, let's play with these dolls and then they'd make up like a fictional scenario about the dolls and then sort of like vaguely go back into oh but were you hurt like this sometimes they would get violent with the dolls and they would yell and they would do all sorts of things that would make the children upset and again they would realize the the, what the quote-unquote correct answer was and give that answer to the therapists and the police in order to be allowed to go home to be told that they were they were good Uh, A lot of times it would be like, well, we know that this happened. We know this happened to you. And all your friends said that it happened to you. So you have to tell us the truth. And, you know, in a situation like that, especially with like a three or four year old child, you know, they, they want to be good. They want to be able to go home. They want to stop this. So they will say, you know, yes, of course, that's what happened to me. But these these accusations got weirder and weirder because they were being fabricated from the minds of three-year-olds. So they were like 
largely bonkers. Uh, some examples, I could go on and on and on about these because they're so weird, but some of the more well-known ones is in the McMartin preschool trial specifically, there was the children talked about how there were these like elaborate tunnels under the school that led to like graveyards and like secret sex caves and all sorts of things. There was some kids claim that they were flushed down the toilets. And when they were flushed down the toilet, it would drop them into like a secret sex dungeon. I feel like these are relatively easy to disprove. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> There another one that is incredibly easy to disprove is that there was a lot of talk about like zoo animals being sacrificed, which you would think of like a giraffe was missing from a zoo because they would specifically say frequently like, oh, well, we went to the zoo and we took the giraffe and then like they killed it. And like, then we had to like, you know, do whatever with the dead giraffe. And it's like, well, a zoo would notice if a giraffe was missing. Yeah, they do like a head count every morning. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of like elaborate trips through airports, through f on hot air balloons, like things that could not have happened in the time of day that these kids were alone with these teachers at preschool. There were there were kid there were signs that adults were like flying around the room. There's a lot of scatological stuff because the kids are like three and four years old, and three and four year olds love scatological humor. Also, well. Another thing about Michelle Remembers that we, we just kept on talking about gross stuff. There was also a lot of scatological stuff in yeah. Michelle Remembers, yeah. which was, ugh. <laughs> that seems to be like a real theme in satanic or like ritual abuse. Yeah. And all sorts of stuff. One of the teachers in, not the McMartin uh, trial, but one in New Jersey specifically said like, there have you ever, there are 30 kids in my class. Have you ever tried to undress and redress a child? Do you know how long it takes? Do you know, can you imagine like how long it would take to undress 30 children and then redress them? That alone would take up the majority of the time that you're mm -hmm. claiming that these things happened in. Like it is just like physically impossible for this to, to be occurring, you know? And, and, and like you pointed out, like stuff like tunnels under the school are really easy to prove. They didn't have happen but no one cared none of no one cared it was just mass hysteria there were dozens of these cases that were actually brought to trial let alone accusations across the country there were over 200 people that were actually accused of um you know this satanic ritual abuse of children daycare children 80 of them actually went to prison some of their convictions were overturned on appeal. Some of them as recently as 2017. Uh, but others died in prison. The McMartin preschool case alone took over seven years, and it is the most expensive criminal case in U.S. history. It was over $15 million. And in the end, in the McMartin trial, everyone was acquitted because there was no actual evidence. And it was later brought up, and I, I say this not to be like, ah, crazy people, because I think we're very clear on this podcast that many of us have suffered from mental health issues and behavioral health needs to be treated and not, you know, demonized. But it did turn out that the mother of the boy who first started the accusations in the McMartin trial uh, did have schizophrenia and she was unmedicated and it was untreated and her accusations got wilder and wilder and wilder as time went on um, until she actually died before the trial even concluded. So already, like, if they had spent two seconds looking into this, it would become clear that this was nonsense, but it, it didn't. And it ruined the lives of a lot of, of daycare providers. It left some of them destitute, even some of the ones who were let out of jail. It, their convictions were not cleared. They were just let out. 
um, which meant that they could no longer work with children, which was what they did their entire lives prior to going to prison. Those who had been in prison for a long time had no money and couldn't get jobs because they had this on their record because their records weren't expunged. It was just terrible. And, you know, in addition to all of the people who were accused as victims, the children were victims too. Uh, Any that suffered real abuse will never know if it was real because they were clumped in with all of this hysteria. And even when children did recant, when they did realize like bad things were happening because of something they said and they knew it was a lie, instead of being like, oh, maybe we should look into this further, the district attorneys would mock the children on the stand, would yell at them and threaten them. And they're... Anything they said after that was dismissed as, oh, well, it's just things that they're saying to like, because they feel like they have to. It's not true. The interviews themselves that they had with these children were frequently incredibly traumatic to go through. You know, they would say all of these terrible things that were happening that are things that, you know, a normal three or four year old wouldn't know existed, wouldn't know were an option or a possibility. And then they'd be saying, well, they happened to you. Uh, the the interviews were also coercive and manipulative uh, and really fucked a lot of these kids up. Uh, many of them lived with terrible guilt. Others are still convinced that they were abused. There's one particular, I think it was 2005, one of the the defendants in the, or not the defendants, uh, one of the, the kids who had um, accused the McMartin teachers put an open letter in, I think it was the LA Times saying like, hey, I live with terrible guilt about this. Like, I need to apologize. Like, I knew it was wrong, but my parents were saying that, like, this was what happened and that I had to say this because it was what was right. And I was, like, four, so I didn't know any better. And I've just lived with terrible guilt all this time. And, like, please, I I, I know I don't deserve it, but I hope you would, apo- like, you would accept my apology for what I put you through. And the teachers came out in a public statement and said, like, you don't need to apologize. Like, you didn't do anything wrong. You were four. You know, it's, it's don't, don't feel guilty about this. Like, it's not your fault. We don't blame you. We never have felt like the children were at fault in any of this. Like, this is what happens when mass hysteria takes over. The, during the cases, there was a sort of slogan that became, people kept repeating, especially when people would question the more bizarre claims, and it was believe the children. But despite that, the only children that they did actually believe were the ones who fit their satanic ritual abuse narrative. Even though, like I said earlier, children are statistically more likely to be abused or molested by male relatives. But that doesn't really fit in with their like, oh, we need to punish the working mothers for leaving the children with these daycare workers. If only they had been home with their mothers, none of this would have ever happened. Push to get back towards the nuclear family. So we're just going to pretend that that's not true. Uh, Children who did not have claims of satanic abuse were dismissed. Uh, as were any adult victims who tried to use this as a moment for victims' rights to say, like, I too was molested. It's like, oh, but were you, like, molested in an evil sex dungeon when they sacrificed a rhinoceros and poured its blood all over you? No? Okay, well, you don't count then. And as weird and sensational as all of this was, as these methods and stories got debunked in the early to mid-90s, the fervor died down and basically disappeared. Like on a dime, it became that those who were skeptical previously were were, were previously had been that those who were skeptical were were made fun of and dismissed and persecuted. Now the tables had turned, and it was people who believed who were being ridiculed. All of these reports came out from police departments and the FBI saying that not only could 
satanic sex rings on the scale these children claim not exist, but they physically couldn't exist. Like it could not be possible for these things happen to have happened in the time frame and at the scale that people were claiming that they were. And, you know, just like that, people generally forgot about it altogether, unless it was a punchline or like a boogeyman for a scary story. And ritual sex abuse faded back into uh, something that fringe conservatives would would yell about and not you know, people with half a brain. Um, as, as we know now, QAnon has really kind of leaned into like, ah, uh, yes, it's, it's the children that are suffering. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's my, a brief version of my TED talk about the satanic <laughs> panic. Yeah. Now the new Satan is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> when John touches- Podesta, <laughs> when Hillary touches you, it leaves a rash for decades. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Um, I wanted to, so I read an article that kind of covered some of the FBI research into this and one, and, and kind of to connect it back to our, our buds, Michelle and Pazder, the, like you said, Kate, they, they, they kind of started a like circuit of being experts for law enforcement officers to go here and ask questions and whatever. And this guy Lanning, who I, I recall from the beginning of this article was um, it ended up being kind of like head of the FBI child sex department, whatever that's called. He kind of became quickly very dubious of the two of them because what he said, he's like, he's like, he went and saw them speak. He recalled taking about 40 pages of notes until he began to notice something odd. Police officers would ask Michelle a question and she would turn to Pazder who would answer the question. And the this officer piped up. I'm curious. These are all things that happened to Michelle, but you seem to be answering all the details. And Pazder responded that Michelle, whose last name is actually Proby, Michelle Proby no longer retained any memories of the events after she recounted them. Her brain had locked back up again, and now I'm the keeper of the story. Pazder had said, and this <laughs> FBI officer immediately put down his pen and didn't take any other notes. And which, first of all, contradicts what's in the actual book because, like, Michelle fully remember like after she goes through all of her remembering, it's like she fully remembers, like, oh, how does this connect to this other thing that I remember? Like, she remembers everything. A- and now, but it's also just this like now that they're out on the circuit, Pazder is doing all the talking, and she's completely deferential to him. But again, there's he's got this like psychiatry reason for it like there's a there's an excuse for why michelle can't talk about her own story yeah the the remembering has concluded right (laughs) that didn't that did not imply to me that she just forgot everything again like i feel like that would maybe have made it into the epilogue it's concluded (laughs) (sighs) all right should we move on to our dramatic readings and just give you all some just give you all some fresh rememberings yeah let's do it so i'm first which is great because i just talked a lot and i'm sure you're sick of my voice but here we go so i'm gonna read a little bit from chapter four that gets into a little bit about physically what was going on between michelle and dr pastor during these long memory sessions because uh as i'm sure you all know from your own experience in therapy, uh, the best way to really connect with your therapist is to cuddle with them on the couch while you're recounting your traumatic past memories. Uh, Totally. When Michelle arrived, she was drawn and tense, but resolute. They talked a bit before she descended into the past about her fear of returning to that time. I wish I could have a sort of link to the present, she said, something to connect with, so that when I go down there, I won't get caught by it. 
Sometimes I'm afraid I'll get stuck and have to stay down there forever. Her voice was quavering, and Dr. Pastor knew she spoke from a real need. I could put my hand on your head again, he said, the way I did yesterday. And look here, I'll pull my chair all the way over to the sofa, next to you. But that was not close enough. Still, Michelle felt alone and endangered. He experimented with sitting beside her on the sofa, and for a while it seemed as if that would suffice. But then the terror thickened her voice again, and they shifted so that he could sit on the sofa with her head against his shoulder. This seemed to give her the closeness and security she needed. It made checking the tapes and coping with the telephone a bit awkward, but he could manage. <laughs> he managed fine. Ugh. Yeah, later on, it, it there's something that goes like to the point where they're like, oh, well, they no longer sat on the couch next to each other. Instead, they would lie on the floor together. <laughs> it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Okay. I wonder why um his wife was like not super stoked when she heard about all this. <laughs> wonder why. So I'm going to read from chapter five. I'm going to do a little bit like towards like basically the way these all work is that like Michelle will do her remembering and then um, Pastor will integrate the memories with Michelle. So I'm just going to start in kind of random spot. If you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, don't worry. It didn't make, it wouldn't make you any more sense if I had like started any sooner, but, but yeah, so this is a little bit how the integration works. So she'll explain like, I was laughing. It wasn't even a crazy laugh. It wasn't that kind. I can't laugh right now, but I can let you know how I felt inside. My outside was really frantic. My outside hit the lump, but my inside wasn't like that. I saw the blood. It's not, no, you'll put me away. Dr. Pazder waited until she looked up, and then he held her gaze. You'll just have to trust me, he said gently. It's important. My insides just went, I'll try to show you my inside. It was watching what, was, what my outside was doing, and it just went really quiet. She took several deep breaths. I was really quiet. And then I felt warm. And then it felt warm. Warm? Yes. And then the amazing thing was that I didn't need the bear, like like a teddy bear, I think. And it felt like a birthday party. This doesn't make any sense, you see. It makes a great deal of sense. And it just felt like it feels standing by a window with the sunshine coming in. It doesn't make any sense. But you see, the blood was warm. The blood was warm. And it it felt good. She was crying, but not bitterly. There were tears of relief, of release, and my inside smiled. It didn't laugh. It just felt warm, like sunshine, not crazy laughing. I just wanted everyone to feel warm, too. Of course, it was the only thing you could touch in that room that was normal and good. You think that it was? Let me see your hands. I want to hold them. You don't mind? Not a bit. They've changed a lot from the way they were earlier, haven't they? Yes. Yes, they have. They're better. The rash has gotten very much less, and they look fuller, and they feel warm. They haven't been warm for a long time, you know. Blood doesn't make them dirty. It doesn't make you ugly. It doesn't make you ugly. Thank God you understand. Thank goodness. We read 300 pages of that, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So it's just a lot of that kind of like, oh, here's a confusing explanation of the remembering where it's like weird and bloody, but it felt good, question mark, followed by like weird sexual tension. (laughs) I am reading from chapter 19. So this is after they've started talking to their local bishops and and Michelle has decided she wants to be baptized. So they've set her baptism for June 28th. And this is um, now they're they're going to 
discover the creepy bench. On June 24th, Dr. Pazder and Michelle went together to Sacred Heart Church. As they sat in the pew listening to Father Guy celebrate Mass, Dr. Pazder noticed that the sacristy light, a little candle burning in a glass cup suspended by a chain from the ceiling, had suddenly grown dim. Did you see that, he asked Michelle after the service? The sacristy light went all the way, went way down. It's still way down. Maybe it's burning out, Michelle replied, glancing over at it. And then she tensed. What's that? She exclaimed in a loud whisper. A few feet away was a small wooden bench. Neither of them had ever noticed it in the church before. And they would have. It was very out of place in the simple modern decor. Those symbols, Michelle said, and Dr. Pazder, looking closer, saw that the bench was carved with ornate designs. His heart skipped a beat. They were precisely the symbols Michelle had described as being sewn on the cloaks of the inhabitants of the round room. They hurried to the back of the church where Father Guy was bidding farewell to the last of the worshippers. Father, said Dr. Pazder, could you come here for a second? I want you to have a look at something. When the priest stood before the little bench, his expression of befuddlement changed to one of shock. Oh my God, he said, what is that doing in here? How did that get in here? I know those symbols. We'll get rid of it right away. He snatched up the bench and, holding it at arm's length, quickly transported it from the church to the grass outside. They examined it. It was very well made, well fitted, finished with many coats of varnish. What should we do with it? Dr. Pazder asked. I can tell you what we'll do with it, Father Guy said. We'll burn it. It couldn't be more perfect. This is the feast of St. John the Baptist. You know the gospel. St. John was the bearer of the light. It's traditional to have a bonfire on the feast of St. John to signify the bringing of the light to lighten the world. We'll have a bonfire tonight, and we have our fuel. In preparation, Dr. Pazder and Father Guy knocked the bench apart. Soon its sections were strewn on the grass. Oh, Michelle said, and the others looked at her inquiringly. Don't you see? There are 13 pieces. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) There's so much I love about this section. One of them is that Michelle, five-year-old slash adult Michelle, described the markings of Satan so precisely that Pazder just had a perfect picture of them in his head that he could recognize on the bench. Naturally. That seems I love that the bench easily fell apart into 13 pieces because it's from the evil Ikea horror (laughs) store. (laughs) I'm picturing one of those breakaway chairs, but it's like specifically structured to fall into exactly 13 pieces. I also like the image of the bishop like running with it, like arm outstretched. Like this, I feel like if you put like Keystone Cops music behind this scene, it would feel like really funny. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I think imagining what it, these like these Satanist IKEA instructions look like with the little IKEA man blobs looking questioningly, <laughs> but like <laughs> with the tail, I guess I don't. Like, yeah, I really got little like horns. This. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Speaking of horns and a tail, I can't believe we <laughs> forgot to mention this detail. Um, I'm about to do the last dramatic reading from toward the end when. Everything on the dark liturgical calendar is leading up to something called the Feast of the Beast, which I cannot stop imagining. Like, I feel like any kind of, like, small town Italian restaurant would have a Feast of the Beast special. And it's, like, stop by on weekday evenings for, like, two gallons of spaghetti and a whole thing of garlic bread. Feast of the Beast, $9.99. And, like, they're all... I think we need to be the change we see in the world. <laughs> I know what I'm doing right. with the rest of my life. Um, and also, this book is also filled with things that, like, if they were writing for, like, Buffy, this would have all been rejected. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Feast of the Beast. That was too silly. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm reading, I'm going to be doing a little bit of excerpts, and I'm just going to read you some of Satan's poetry jams. And so there are kind of descriptive texts around it that I'm not going to read. I'm just going to give you some poetry. The knife is ready. It is time to begin. It has been poisoned and sharpened very thin. Cut it off on the stone. Cut through every bone. As a sign you give to me, you are mine for an eternity. Turn what's white into red. You have the power of the living dead. Okay, and then Michelle takes the bone. I will, Michelle takes the bone, and then he has rhymes bone with bone and says, I want that bone! How dare you take <laughs> my bone! <laughs> give me back the bone that's mine. Then everything will be fine. Just go back and get the bone. I will let you go back home. And then she won't give him the bone. And then she says, There will be no place for you to hide. No nook, no cranny, no rest. No place above, no place below. You'll always have no place to go. Uh, and then near, nearly after that, the remembering is completed. Thank God. <laughs> I just, this feel, all of these rhymes feel like a bad translation from like the original Power Rangers. <laughs> like Rita Repulsa. Dr. Seuss or something. Yeah, yeah. Like Rita Repulsa's up on her rock, like saying something in Japanese, and this is what the American translator came up with. <laughs> I like that. Uh, um, yeah. So that was Michelle Remembers. And now it's time for Reader's Advisory, where we'll suggest stuff to read instead of or in addition to Michelle Remembers. First of all, definitely instead of, this book is hard to track down. I mean, you can get a one-hour borrow of a PDF from Internet Archive, but it's hard to get and not worth any effort. (laughs) (laughs) I would say listen to the You're Wrong About episodes if you haven't already listened to any other podcast about it. Yeah, um, I've got, I'll throw a bunch of links up on the website um, for various podcasts and stuff. A couple like fictional books that are from the same time period, uh, not from, that are set in that time period and kind of address the satanic panic as it was happening are My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. And it's funny when you were like, oh, it came from Satan's Ikea because Grady <laughs> Hendrix also has a book called A Horror Store. Which and that's, is... what, that's to what I was referring. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were aware of it. No, I, I said The Horror Store. But yes, um, there's a book called A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, who, I mean, he's got a lot of really great books anyway, but kind of goes into like a a little bit more towards like the exorcist than straight up satanic panic but similar there's a new book that i just started reading like my hold on it just came in this week and i haven't had a chance to read it yet um called whisper down the lane by clay mcleod chapman which theoretically is again i say theoretically because i haven't actually read it yet so i don't know if this is an actual recommendation but it's about a man who was one of the children who accused a teacher uh, back in the 80s and now he's an adult and someone is digging into his past and discovering uh, what he did and bringing it mm. up to his like you know current time self again haven't actually started reading that one yet so I have two recommendations um, if you want some like weird kooky Catholicism I would recommend the memoir Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood um, Patricia Lockwood's father was a, a Lutheran priest who converted to Catholicism and was allowed to 
continued being a priest. So that's a that's a fun read. It's got some depressing bits too, but like if you're like wanting some weird Catholicism, I'd go for it. Plus, you should buy it to support Miette's mother, Miette yes. the Internet Cat. Uh, she has an incredible Twitter presence, uh, including lots of Twitter content about her cat Miette. And if you want a more like exploration of sketchy therapist relationships, there's a good podcast series called The Shrink Next Door about a manipulative therapist. And so that has like a good ending, actually. So that's those are both nonfiction. And I would say if I'm going to recommend something that's like kind of not at all related, but I promise it is, is there's a new Netflix documentary about Billy Milligan that just came out like last week. I've forgotten what it's called, but it's Netflix. So they're trying to get everyone to watch it. It's if you log into Netflix, it'll probably it's it. Um, Billy Milligan was um, one of, if not the first person in the US to be, uh, he committed a crime. Everyone agreed he, com- he committed the crimes, but he was found not guilty for reason of mental insanity because he had multiple personality disorder. And the documentary kind of does a really good job of covering uh, the, the parallels between kind of the rise of multiple personality disorder in like horror and culture kind of really mirrors what happened with the satanic panic and Michelle remembers. Um, it also references a book, which I can't recommend because I haven't read it, but uh, called Sybil and like Sybil is to the multiple personality disorder rise. What Michelle remembers is to the satanic panic. It, it was like the one thing where I was like, Oh, I'm actually kind of glad I'm reading Michelle remembers right now because I can really see the parallel between this story in U.S. culture and the satanic panic in U.S. culture. So it's a little little sideways of a recommendation, but it was very interesting. <laughs> hmm. All right, cool. Um, well, we'll have all these and some other ones we didn't get around to talking about up at our website, worstbestsellers.com. And now we'll move on to The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Grace and Ashley can choose which most enhances the book, or can choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> Okay, um, so if The Rock was in this book, he would give Pazder and Michelle a very strict lecture about how, while it's totally fine to have a fictional public persona that differs from your real life, you really shouldn't make up totally <laughs> bonkers and dangerous nonsense about your life and then claim it's 100% true. Uh, that's a that's good wisdom for us all. But if Wolverine were in this book, he would take young Michelle uh, to go live at Xavier's school, where (laughs) she might still end up neglected by adult figures in her life and might also have to fight a cult and might also still meet Satan. But at least she'd have some non-pretend friends with her by her side for it and probably wouldn't ever write this book. (laughs) I have a follow-up question. Would she never meet Pazder in this situation? No. No, X-Men aren't allowed to have therapy. (laughs) i'm gonna go with the wolverine i think so i think the best case scenario is for michelle and pastor to just never never meet at all i think that's best for everyone everyone's marriage it's bad it's just best for every in all regards so i think definitely the wolverine the wolverine situation although i do think the rock should just maybe show up as a guest lecturer and give that pep talk anyway yeah yeah show up yeah the x-men could use it too (laughs) to show up to pastor's lies um body as he (laughs) so much so much liveness i just (laughs) oh he's so live and handsome but now imagine him in spandex (laughs) there are some photos 
of him. And it's not that he like, I mean, obviously beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but like, he's just like an average middle-aged white dude. He's not like the way that he's described in the text. is like, this dude's a real catch, a real hottie. And it's like, the way he's described in the text written by himself and his wife. <laughs> so handsome, such big, so patient, such nice warm hands. High yeah. cheekbones. Like his cheekbones are average. High, po- high Polish cheekbones. <laughs> uh, average cheekbones. Good thing this guy's already dead or this would kill him. I have a question. I could not figure out what happened to Michelle. Like, it's like you, someone mentioned earlier, know, something being scrubbed, scrubbed by the from internet. I'm like, is yeah. she still alive? What's her last name so. right now? Like what, what is she doing with her life now that everything that she purported happened to her has been entirely debunked? Like, is she, she's obviously not still out on the circuit claiming it's true. Like that we, that would be yeah. advertised somewhere. Like the woman just seems to have disappeared. I hope she's just doing fiber arts under an assumed name. Yes. Yeah. Like, Oh, same. I hope Michelle's forgotten everything. <laughs> Which yeah. Buster seems to claim that she did, and he was the holder of memory. So hopefully, like, now that he's out of out of the picture, she doesn't have to think about it. It's just so messed up. It's like he created the situation where like he has to be her keeper and caretaker. Oh, I hate it so much, guys. Yeah. Well, you know who else hated it? Is my cat Duarte. Duarte hated this book, but let's let's let him give his opinions in Duarte's corner. I know we should have given you a trigger warning, Duarte, that there would be a lot of cat deaths. I'm really sorry about that. But the good news is it's all fake. So, you know, they weren't really murdering kittens and dumping them in a mass grave. Like, those kittens were fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, That was another thing that came up a lot, like, during the debunking of the various satanic ritual abuse things is... There were so many, like, babies were killed, people were killed. It's like, people would notice if that many babies were killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Even that many, like, specifically they kill white kittens because they want to, like, kill the purity or whatever. Like, I don't know how much time you spend looking at Pet Finder, but you can't find that many, like, pure white cats yeah. just every day. It's rare. I also found an article where someone was like, like someone from Victoria was like, I've been in that graveyard. Like there's a scene where the nurse is supposed to like <laughs> pick up a, a, a slab that's covering a grave. I forgot what they're called. And it's like he, the, the person's like, it would take like a half dozen strong men to lift that up. Like you can't just pick up a slab of granite like that. If you're one nurse, like that's not it's like literally unfeasible. All right. Well, Duarte, thanks for your opinion. Sorry we exposed you to this, but don't worry. It is debunked and and everything's fine. And uh, do any humans have any closing thoughts about Michelle Remembers? I really just have an earnest one, which is like, as much as it sucks to read this, it's like, I don't know, good to look at the moral panics about child abuse in the past to like prevent the moral panics about child abuse in the present. I don't know. The people who I think need that message are probably not listening to this podcast. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could have a hundred million closing thoughts, so I'll just yeah. say that I thank thanks for. I know this sucked. Thanks for doing it with me, guys. <laughs> we always get the real weird that books. Was, <laughs> that was a really good presentation, Kate. By the way, yeah. Yes, yeah. thank you. I, I it was everything I dreamed of. Thanks. I'm glad. I was. I felt like there's a lot of pressure building up to it. 
<laughs> I have one last uh, one last closing thought. The Satanic Temple, the one that's like down the street from me in Salem. They all, one of the things they also do is like help people who have been victims of like recovered memory therapy. So mm. it's a sort of nice little like Satanists trying to undo the damage of the Satanic Panic. Yeah, recovered memory therapy was another where I was like, I could talk about this for 20 minutes. <laughs> I have no real closing thoughts. I, I guess I'm sort of glad that I read this book because now like I know. And it was like, it was an interesting experience because like you're reading, it's in- interesting to read a book knowing that everyone who read it originally thought it was real and you are reading it knowing that it's fake nonfiction. And like, it's just, it was an interesting kind of experience as a reader, but I look forward to never reading this book again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, my closing thought is um, barfing emoji, skull emoji, (laughs) deeply frowning emoji. (laughs) Uh, Sad devil emoji. (laughs) And crying cat emoji. (laughs) Uh, If you'd like to share your emoji journey with us, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Worst Bestsellers spelled normally. And we're on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S because we forgot the S. We just forgot about it. Sorry. Um, we also have a Goodreads group that's best accessed by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on Goodreads. You can find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, all of the podcast places you know how to find podcasts because you're listening to this one right now. If you do find us one of those places, we ask that you rate and review. Uh, When you rate and review, it moves us up a bit on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. Uh, If you don't rate and review, then we are going to force you to go to many, many hours of therapy until you remember (laughs) why you didn't do it in the first place. You can also pledge to us on Patreon. Uh, If you're unfamiliar, Patreon is a service that allows you to pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us that helps us do things like pay for our web hosting and our editing software and all sorts of other fun things. And you get perks in response. Uh, There's a newsletter that comes out. Uh, There is a chance to vote on an episode that we do. Uh, Also, if you go to our website, uh, you will be able to find merch and uh, all different designs based on our podcast. And you'll also find a link to our Discord server where you can talk with other fans and bully us into doing more books that maybe this time it'll be a book that I hate and Renata's excited about. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll balance. There's balance in the force and in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) If you just want to come talk to me and maybe get some proof of life for Duarte that he has not been ritually sacrificed. That would never. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Renata Snacks. If you're looking for me, I am mostly on Instagram these days at 14 across. And what about you folks? Um, I am Grace Topia on Twitter. I'm also Grace Topia on Instagram, but I'm much less chatty over there. Like Michelle, um, I'd prefer to keep my internet presence <laughs> under wraps. <laughs> she has been scrubbed from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's valid. Um, all right. Well, we'll be back in two weeks. We're continuing our satanic panic journey with Jay's journal by Anonymous. And we'll, you know, we'll get into that later. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see you then. And Grace and Ashley, thanks for 
being part of our club and not our cult and going, <laughs> going on this journey with us. Yeah. Of course. Thank you for having us. It was, uh, it was an adventure. It was a trip. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. I feel like kind of okay about this one going a little bit long because I'm the person who's editing it. It's Kate on Kate violence.